This week, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to go verses 1 through 11 as we look at the temptation of Jesus. So read along with me. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, click there, read behind me. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Temptation 1. Temptation 2. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus replied, said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And look, behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Father, as we read about the temptation of Jesus, might we see in him just how different he is. How he established for us a new thing. How he came in power. How he is God. That he did what we could never do. Anchor our hearts in this this morning. We need you. We pray you guide us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus, Lamb of God, was like us and yet not like us, right? He was like us and not like us. He was like us in every way we were human, He was not like us because he was also God. We talked about that last week. Both fully man and fully God. Something that none of us will ever be able to say about ourselves. Jesus, fully man, fully God. Able to do what we could not. Able to stand when we could not. Able to obey when we did not. And through his sacrifice, able to forgive something in in a way that we could have never done for ourselves. In every way, in every way that we failed, Jesus didn't. In every way that we fell, Jesus stood. In every way we were weak, Jesus was strong. And we should see that as we go throughout the Gospels. We're not going to go through every verse of every Gospel here. We're going to go through just kind of the birth, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his teaching in the ministry, his uh, death and resurrection. We'll follow those over the next few Sundays, just kind of again, as we did in the Old Testament. We're going to fly through and kind of get our bearings for what's going on. But each time we look at these, we might anchor back in some truths that we have already read or things that we've already discussed. 
Jesus is different than anyone or anything. When we were weak, he was strong. And as we get into the temptation of Jesus, it's important for us to realize something that's going on here is that Jesus is starting to kind of reorder things. The wilderness is a place of testing. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that, right, Moses wandered in the wilderness. They were there for 40 years. Um, that, that, that's a place where often God does some type of work and preparation for something else, and then they enter into the land. The Lord uses the wilderness. Now, the wilderness, we always go, not the woods. Texas wilderness is woods. Okay, like that's not, that's not the case here. So Israel wilderness is desert. It's just barren, rocky, you know, crags and everything else is kind of all throughout. So wilderness looks different. Wilderness is different. And after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, the Spirit does something. Jesus is led into temptation. Led into temptation. If you look at verses just 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the, what's that word? Spirit, right, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, if you're in our reading plan this week, then you read the Lord's Prayer. And there's this phrase in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we pray, Lord, uh, keep me from temptation, yet the Spirit's like, let's go do this with Jesus. I would say, right, you can follow different people and get different takes on this, but I think we should never pray, Lord, lead us into temptation. Jesus teaches us to pray differently, okay? He teaches, yeah, so, so like what we need to realize is what's going on is in the Gospel of Matthew, and any time you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is Jesus' otherness is being presented. Okay, so, so specifically in John, we see right away, this guy's different. We're going to see it here in Matthew 4. This guy's different. Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the first thing that he does in the wilderness, is he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. All in preparation for his public ministry. All in preparation for his public ministry. Because after this moment, he's going to kind of head back. And he's going to go and minister for the next few years, death, burial, resurrection, Genesis Community Church, right? I, just, I summarized about 2,000 years right there, but that's where we got. So Jesus is led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. He fasted and he prayed 40 days, 40 nights. And I love this statement right there at the end of verse 4. So after doing that, he was hungry. Like, things you didn't need to tell me, Matthew. I would guess he would be hungry. So what do we see after he goes and he's led and he's prepared is there's a confrontation between Jesus, the Son of God, and between Satan. Now, just if your ears perk up and go, hey, I've heard of people being tempted before by Satan, you're smart, right? So good Bible student. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the tempter show up again with Adam and Eve. Okay, so that happened too. We all know how that went. Not well. So we see a confrontation between Adam and Eve and Satan in Genesis chapter 3. We're seeing a confrontation between Jesus, the Son of God, and Satan in Matthew chapter 4. 
So there are three temptations. There's this temptation for fleshly desires, uh, hunger that you would just uh, have your appetite met, your worldly, temporal body appetite. The tempter came to him and said this, if you're the son of God, I love how he knows who he is. If you're the son of God, go ahead and turn these stones into bread. Jesus answered, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. In that first temptation, we see Satan tempting Jesus with what would be a pretty human response. You haven't eaten for a while. You're hungry. There's no food around here. You're God. So why don't you go ahead and just turn these stones into bread? That's fine. And what does Jesus do? He combats the temptation with a quote from Deuteronomy. And I know all of you are just like in your Bible drills. You're like, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. Like, it's all you know. And so Jesus comes back with Deuteronomy and he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now this is what we see going on here with Jesus. Jesus comes and you'll find statements where he's like, I do the will of the Father. The Father didn't say do it, I don't do it. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are in lockstep together. Satan goes, hey, Jesus, son of God, why don't you go ahead and just fulfill your own desire here? Just fulfill your own desire. Jesus goes, no, that's not how this works. I obey the Father. I don't live by bread alone, but I live and sustain myself by hearing from, listening to, and obeying every word that comes from the mouth of God. That life is more significant than just satisfying my earthly appetite. Now that's a lesson all of us should latch on to. We don't usually live, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Because when you go on vacation, what does your vacation revolve around? Where are you going to eat? That's all it is. Like, I can't wait to go on vacation. We're going to have breakfast here, and then we're going to just kind of dawdle for a few hours, and then we're going to have lunch here, and then we're going to go do this, and then we're going to have dinner here. I can't wait to hit up all of these spots, right? Like we have a, a million-dollar food budget. So we often live in the opposite, don't we? Well, before I read, let me go ahead and eat. Must eat. Eating's good. I enjoy good food. Hopefully you enjoy good food as well, but we often flip the script. Our lives way too often revolve around meeting and satisfying our own just temporal desires. We do not sustain ourselves from the word of God. We do not sustain ourselves in obedience to God. We do not live in sync with the Lord. Rather, we're just kind of like, I got to get my own stuff done and take care of my own things. Time and time and time again, we see Jesus being different. And here he is again, quoting Deuteronomy, going, hey, listen, I do not live just to meet my own desires. I obey. And right now, this is not what's to be doing, what we're to be doing. Now, this is the same God, right? This is the same God. Jesus is not anti-food. He did make one, you know, a lot of fish and a lot of loaves. So he's not like, no, 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 we don't ever eat. Like, no, he had some pretty cool food miracles, so he's not about not eating. That wedding at Cana, he made more wine. 
Jesus is not anti-food. He's not anti-celebration. He's not like, oh no, that's not what we do here. But in this moment, Satan's going, meet your own desire. He says, that's not what I do. That's not what I do. And he quotes Deuteronomy. So Satan, because Satan has no new tricks, he's like, okay, you're going to quote the Bible to me? I'll quote the Bible to you, right? Probably didn't call it the Bible, though, but we'll say it. A little anachronistic. Then the devil took him to a holy city, the holy city, set him up on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, hey, you're the son of God. Go ahead, throw yourself down, for it is written. Okay? I'll go ahead and quote back. It is written. He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's like, hey, yeah, go ahead. Throw yourself down and then use your power as God. Use your influence as God. Use your status as God to go ahead and get people to come because the Bible says it's going to happen. So why don't you go ahead and have them just kind of catch you and float you off. It'd be great. Look at all these people who'd see it. Be like, wow, look at that guy. He's great. So what does Satan do? He takes the scriptures and he twists them just a little bit. In Genesis chapter 3, what are you going to hear is, you know, Satan shows up. is like, hey, you should have this fruit. And she's like, no, we can't eat that. We can't even touch it. You know, we'll die. And his response, his response is, wait, wait a second. Is that really what God said? Did God really say you shouldn't do this? Now, God's keeping something from you, Eve. He's keeping something from you. He's holding out on you. He has given you less than you need. If you do this, you'll be like God. Well, what is Satan doing to Jesus here? Hey, go ahead. Bible says it. Go ahead and try and use it, twist it, flip it to your own purposes. Just fulfill it. This is what happens when you take Scripture out of context. When you go, oh yeah, it says it. I've read it. It says it. Go ahead and do the thing. And what does Jesus say? Again from Deuteronomy in verse 7. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Notice what he is calling himself. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, there are only two people there. There's Satan and there's Jesus. Jesus, even there, is referring to himself as the Lord God. Don't put me to the test. Don't misuse my word. Remember John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Don't put the Lord to the test. Don't try and do this. Don't misuse and contort and twist the scriptures to your purposes, Satan. It's not going to work. So Satan goes, okay, let's try again. Let's just try again. Third temptation. So the devil takes him to a mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, their splendor, their sight. Says, hey, man, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. All these things I'll give to you. Now we have New Testament references, the ruler of the power of the kingdoms of the air, and so Satan's going, hey look, in this fallen world, in this domain, I kind of have some control here. So, you just worship me, you get it. You get it all. And what is Satan trying to do? 
I'm supreme. I'm supreme. Follow me, you get everything that you want. So Jesus says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So what he's saying, No, 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 there's not two gods here. You don't get worship. There's one God who receives worship. Get out of here. Interestingly, all three quotations from Jesus are from the book of Deuteronomy. I remember Howard Hendricks in like a Bible study methods class, he would say this. He was like, if your spiritual life and your ability to resist temptation was only built upon your knowledge of Deuteronomy, how would you do? We're like, uh, I'd be tempted and I'd fall into it all the time. Like Deuteronomy, like I don't use that. Do you see how Jesus, even in temptation, is using and anchoring himself in the scriptures in order to confront Satan? And Satan, in his hubris, is going, okay, let's use, I'll, I'll, I'll play this game with you. And Jesus is like, there's no game to be played. There's one God, you worship him. Satan's gone. And then the angels come and they minister to Jesus. In these three temptations, we see something that we could never do, that Jesus is faithful in temptation. Jesus is faithful in temptation. Now, just listen to these. I would like to follow along. Just listen to these. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said, did God actually say, right, twisting God's words to Adam and Eve. Did God actually say, you shall, you shall not eat of any tree from the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in its midst. Neither shall you touch it. Now, if you have read Genesis 1 and 2 before, God never says don't touch it. Not that that really, you know, for this, this purpose, like God never says don't touch it, but she added to what God had said in order to try and prevent herself from doing the thing that God said not to do, which is something we always do, right? Like, that's kind of how the flesh operates. It's like, well, God said don't do this, so I'm going to say don't do this. That way I clearly won't ever do that. If I touch it, who knows what's going to happen then? So Satan comes in, misuses what God said. Did God really say you shouldn't do this? He's like, yeah, God, really, yeah, God said it. And then Eve, what does she do? Misunderstands and misquotes God back to Satan. Adds to it in a sense. But the serpent said, hey, listen, you're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You're going to be like God. This is what you want. This is what God has for you, right? This is your best life now. Like, this is the way that you need to operate. God has a great plan for your life, and all you need to do is eat the fruit He said not to eat. He's just tricking you. So, listen to this. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, hey, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. Good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Hey, Jesus, do something miraculous here. 
Do something huge. Put these angels on display and let everybody see what you're able to do. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. You get everything if you just worship me. You'll see the world differently if you just operate this way. She took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Think about the differences between those two accounts for a second. Matthew 4, Genesis 3, the original temptation. Think about the context of Matthew 4 and Genesis 3. In Genesis chapter 3, what do Adam and Eve have? They have a perfect world. Sin has not entered into this world. They have abundant food. Abundant food. You can eat anything you want. Just not this. Anything else you want, you can have. And it wasn't enough. They have one another. They actually have companionship. They have community together. Matthew chapter 4, what did Jesus have? A fallen world, no food, in the wilderness, alone. And in that moment, what was Jesus able to do? He was able to stand firmly on the truth of God and reveal to us and show us just how different he was. We would love to think, give me every situation, give me the perfect scenario, give it all to me, God. If I had, you know, if the humidity was X and the temperature was here and I had all of this stuff and I had an abundant supply of everything that I needed, then I could stand. No, you couldn't. You couldn't stand. Because if you look at everything Adam and Eve had, they had way more than you and I would ever have in supply at that point in time. And they still went askew. Jesus, with nothing they had but being God, stood. What does Satan do? Every single time Satan is there to tempt, he's only coming at you a few ways. He's appealing to your flesh. He's appealing to your power. He's appealing to uh, glory, power, and personal gain. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to make you look great. He's trying to make life about you. He's trying to make you fulfill your own desires. He's misusing scripture to do it. He does it in Genesis 3. He does it in Matthew 4. Like Satan's scheme doesn't change. It's the same over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And this is what happens because there are probably people here this morning who are going, I don't know if God is good. Right? You're wondering, can he be trusted? Is he good enough? Does he love me? And those little footholds Satan takes and he'll say, if God loved you, then he probably would not have had that thing happen. 
If God cared about you, then this wouldn't have been the case. God loves some people, but God doesn't love you. God cares about some people, but he does not care about you. And all of those voices that come at us in these moments of doubts and moments of weakness, or these little slips of integrity that we might have. If you just, I mean, if you just, just, just cut a corner just a little bit, a little bit, no one's looking. No one's looking, no one's gonna know. You're fine. Appealing to our desire for self. His schemes never change. A little tweak of scripture, right? Heresy isn't born from people who don't read the Bible. It's born from people who probably read it better than you and I often do, more regularly, more consistently. There are always going to be heretics who are more aware of what the scriptures say than you do. Satan was one of them. Right? I mean, it was like, hey, we're going to do Bible drills with the Son of God now? I'm in. I'll quote something, you quote something. We'll just go back and forth with this thing. There will always be someone who knows the Bible better than you do, but you have to be on guard for your own heart and how that can get just twisted a little bit. And in that twist, just a little bit, you can be set in an entirely different direction. Because you just start following the breadcrumbs that Satan's laying out. God doesn't love you. God's not there for you. God doesn't care about you. God's not going to care if you do this. God's holding out on you. All of a sudden, you're like, where, how did I get here? How did I get here? The same way we all do. So perfect world, community, abundant food, fall. Jesus, fallen world, wilderness, alone, stands. What does Satan do? Each time, he's appealing to their flesh, desire for personal gain, glory and power. You could have these things, you could do these things. Life could be perfect for you if you would just do this instead of that. And the victory of Jesus is this. As God, rooted in the truths of the word, now remember John 1, he is the word, is able to stand firm and rebuke Satan. Now, clearly, Jesus does for us what we could never do. Jesus is for us what we could never be. Jesus stood for us when we could not. That's one of the key things we need to realize as we get into the New Testament and we're reading about the Son of God and we're seeing the work that he does and the way that he does it is that Jesus is a different person. Too often, too often we treat Jesus as either like genie or counselor. That's it. Like, hey, he's just a lifeline. When I need something, I'm going to come to you. When I need something or I have a question or I need some help or I get in a jam, like I'm going to come to you and you're going to help me get through it and then I'm going to continue living for myself. And many people, probably even us, we will use Jesus as just kind of my on-call therapist. When I need something, I'm going to come to him. When I'm hurting, I'm going to come to him. And then I'm going to go ahead and live the way that I want to live. 
But as you read the Gospels and as you read the rest of the New Testament with us for the rest of the year, what you will start to see is you cannot approach Jesus like that and actually believe he is the Son of God. Because even here, Satan's like, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, hey, do this thing. Do it like this. Do this. The worst thing that we could do for Jesus or to Jesus like, is think that he is just this on-call helper rather than the Son of God who saves us from our sinfulness. Because when he's the Son of God who saves us from our sinfulness, he changes everything about how we approach him. He changes everything about how we follow him. Changes everything about how we think. Now, are there ways that other than that, that we can look at this passage and see what goes on and go, does Jesus help us understand how we should deal with temptation? Yes. Yes, he does. So I want to give a few of those as we follow in his likeness. Is you must be rooted in the scriptures. Or else you don't know what you're hearing. You don't know what you're following. You're just kind of like, well, I feel like this is better. And you're like, well, hold on. That might not be the best. That's why we want to read together as a church family. Let's just read it. Let's read it. We have community groups that are discussing it. We have people who are gathering going, what does this mean here and what are we saying here? I heard this advice one time. I never took it, but I should. So you take it and I'll work on it, okay? What are areas of your life when Satan appeals to your flesh or your desire for personal gain, or glory and power? What are areas that you are tempted? Like all of them, I get it. I get it, all of them. So I just want to help us, and I think Jesus shows us something here, which is find those areas where you know your heart is prone to wander as come thou bounce says, one of my favorite lines. And find the truths in Scripture that speak toward that or against that. So that in moments of temptation, you can stand on what is true. Because one of the worst things that you can do is try and willpower your way out of temptation. Where you just go, okay, I'm just gonna buckle down really hard and keep myself from doing this. I am all for it. Now hear me, man. I am all, man, I'm getting like, like I'm talking to you across the table. I'm all for boundaries in place. If the computer is a source of temptation for you, man, you need to go ahead and firewall that thing to death. Get rid of your internet, do whatever else, cut off your right hand, gouge out your eyes, don't care, not worth it. Do whatever you need to do. I have a buddy whose phone is a brick. He's like, I think it makes calls sometimes, but I have access to nothing else on it. It is totally locked out. Why? I mean, aren't you strong enough yet? He's like, nope. Nope, I don't know if I will ever be strong enough. So, I just make calls. That's all I can do. If I need to open an app, I get my wife and she puts in a code and I use it in her presence. I'm like, go after it. So I am a big fan of going, I know that I'm tempted in these ways, so I'm going to put some things in my life that are gonna help to guard me from those, but hear me, 
If you do not stand on the word of God and understand the truth of God, those temporary boundaries will get blown through because you're not rooting yourself in why you need to not hear it in the first place, why you need to not see it in the first place. Next week, uh, is it next week? I think it is. We talk about money. Like, what if the application were like, let people see your checking account every day and what you spend on? You'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I'm all for living in biblical community, but I'm not for that. My money's private. And you're like, why? Why is it private? If you're constantly going into debt, why in the world would you keep that area of your life hidden from others who could maybe help you? So boundaries are great, but if you don't root yourself in the truths of Scripture as to why one reflects God's heart and character more than the other, they will fail you. And like, it, it is hard to say, and I'm not a great counselor at things like this, because uh, like many dudes, I just kind of like, oh, just stop doing that thing, right? Like, it's kind of the advice we give. I, you do that, don't, don't do that anymore? Uh, is that it? So there are much wiser people about that. So I just want to help just to go root yourself in Scripture. When does that switch flip? And this is the thing. It's like sometimes I can't tell. Like sometimes in a triage moment with temptation, you're just like immobilize, right? Like just, we just have to have that thing immobilized and you can't use it for like the next three months or 15 years, whatever. But if it's not rooted in God's character, obedience to him, his mission, what he's called us into, and our desire to glorify, that is reflect him, then we will miss out on why we even do it in the first place. So Jesus does give us, in a sense, a way to understand how to handle temptation. But what we also see in Matthew is that the reason Jesus can handle temptation the way that he does is because he is God. And we need to put our trust in the one who always stands. Not in ourselves. One of the uh, pieces of advice that I often give to people, and I mean it, but I also don't, is you got this. And what I mean when I say that is like, I believe in what God is doing in you enough to know that like, this is not outside of the realm of victory. That's what I mean. But if you just take it as words, you got this. And it's like, oh, you have the power. You can do this. You, and, uh, and that's not what I mean. So one of the things that we need to hold on to as a church is to realize Jesus is God. We are not. Like, that seems like, oh yeah, duh, Hans. But like, no, 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 no. So often... We're like, Jesus is God, and I help a ton. Like, that's, that's, the, that's a misunderstanding of it. Jesus is God, we're not. Jesus, as God, deserves our trust, devotion, attention, worship, glory, honor, money, days, time, everything. Jesus is buddy, we just kind of share stuff with. He is different. And as people who follow after him, it is important to remember that he is different and that in his coming and in his ministry and in his death and his burial and his resurrection, he has established a completely new thing. 
Tim Keller would call it truer and better. He had that phrase for everything. He's a truer and better. He's a truer and better. He is a better Adam. Jesus is better because he stood when we couldn't. He obeyed when we never would. So rebuke that condition where you go, oh, if I did these things, if I had this, if I handled a life like this, and I'd be okay, and other things wouldn't be. It's not the case. Jesus does for us what we could never do, so we trust him. And as we trust him, we want to become like him. As we become like him, we want to root ourselves in the things that he does. One of the funny phrases that we'll, we'll say, or people are dealing with temptation or sin, and they're like, I know what the Bible says about this. I'm like, clearly you don't, because if you did, you wouldn't, or you would. Right, like, like, like just having knowledge of something up here that doesn't remember we did head, heart, hands, that doesn't transform us more into Christ-likeness means that you haven't really grasped what's going on here. And that's the case with most of us in just about everything. But when we say that, hey, I, I, know, I know what this says. I'm like, you don't know what it says because you'd be broken over it. Right? It would change you, it would challenge you, it would transform you. But in those moments, what do we need to realize? Jesus is God, I am not. And from that place of brokenness, transformation can happen. And you can grow more like him. You'll see, we'll read about new self, old self in a few months or maybe weeks. In Galatians chapter 5, you see the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And these things are still true. The flesh, all those desires that exist in this world, and this fallen nature, and the spirit of God battle against one another all the time. All the time. The Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and leads you in a battle against the flesh. What Galatians 5 says, the fruits of the Spirit are evident, fruits of the flesh are evident. These things war against one another. Now look at this. The Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit leads one man into victory there. And through that one man who had victory over temptation, we all get to enter in through faith in him. He's better. He is better in every way. Follow him. Trust him. Your plans are not as good. Your Bible mastery is not as strong. Your willpower is weak. You will not be able to do it. Trust in him.